Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. Our church's vision is to have a passion for God and compassion for people. We hope that the teachings in this podcast will encourage you as you seek to follow Christ and grow in your faith. Now, let's get into today's message. morning, Ritman Grace Brethren Church. How are we today? It's good to be here with you. You guys are so loud today. Calm down. My name's Clark. I'm the pastor here. If we've never met, I'd love to meet you and uh, your family. If we have met, love to just catch up with you. So feel free to stick around uh, the lobby. If I'm not chasing my toddler around, I'd love to try to hold a conversation with you longer than a minute or two. But uh, yeah, good morning to everyone though. Well, we are in our final week of our 13-week-long sermon series study on the life of Abraham. And what a journey it's been. Uh, If you're just now joining us, you're catching us at the very, very tail end of this 13-week study. So I encourage you to take advantage of going to our website, uh, RittmanGrace.org. You can access all the past week messages that you might have missed, and we'd love to serve you in that way. Well, this morning, as we conclude our study in Abraham's life, we're going to be covering Genesis chapter 24 as well as Genesis chapter 25. And this morning, we're going to be reminded of the tension that Christians always live in. It's a tension that's commonly referred to as the already, not yet. And it's the tension of living between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And in a sense, you could say, in a sense... Abraham lives between the already and the not yet. Because notice what he says to his servant in Genesis 24, verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me, promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. For Abraham, this is the already. This already happened. God has called Abraham to leave his father's house He has promised that he is going to give him land as well as an offspring. And so that's already happened in Abraham's story. And we've been looking back at that the whole time as we've been studying his life. But then there's the not yet. The not yet. Notice how Abraham's story ends in Genesis 25 verse 9. The Bible says his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. And so you have Abraham, he's been promised by God that he is going to possess this entire promised land, and yet all he has at the end of his life is this burial plot. Isn't that how life feels sometimes? Isn't that how it feels? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Christ, don't you struggle sometimes with that gap in between what God has promised and what you've actually received? Doesn't it sometimes feel like His promise is a lot better than your current reality? If, if that's you, if that's how you feel, Abraham understands. It's been 100 years since he left everything behind. And obeying uh, this radical call of God to leave his household and to go to a land that the Lord said that he would show to him. And through Abraham, uh, he's made mistakes. Uh, We've seen that he's struggled. And that he keeps 
in the midst of that, he keeps clinging to God's promises. And what he has to show for it at the end of his life is this burial plot that he had to pay for with his own money. So again, if you're here today, if you're watching online and you feel like God's promises seem kind of underwhelming to you, in other words, if you feel like what you got is a lot less than what you were hoping for, if you feel as if you've taken God at his word, but you don't have a lot to show for it, I think Abraham would understand those feelings. And yet, all the way to his grave, Abraham keeps trusting God. This morning, we're going to see two simple things. We're going to look at, number one, how uh, Abraham's life shows us how to live, but also how Abraham's life shows us how to die. So that's how I'd like to structure our time together this morning. We're going to see from Abraham's life how to live and also from Abraham's life how to die as we come to the closing chapter of this story, the life of Abraham together. So let's look first of all at what Abraham shows us about how to live. This time I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Genesis chapter 24. Uh, if you want to follow along in those uh, Bibles that are in the chairs you're sitting in, it's going to be on page 15. And we'll also have the words up on the screen for you. But in Genesis chapter 24, uh, breaking in at verse 1, here's what it says. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Verse 5, the servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Verse 6, make sure that you do not take my son back there. He said, the Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So what does Abraham show us about how to live? He shows us that, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. He shows us that God's people are to live with resolute trust in God's providence. God's people are to live with resolute trust in God's providence. Um, we're going to summarize a little bit here of what we just read. But in verses 7 and 8, we saw Abraham clearly believes that his servant will providentially uh, be directed and guided to find a suitable wife for his son Isaac. And he says, Lord, uh, the Lord will send his angel before you, before his servant, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But he also says, if she's not willing to follow you, then don't worry about it. He says, you're free from my oath. But I'm trusting that God is going to both guide you and direct you to someone who is willing to follow you. So Abraham has this resolute sense of trust in the providence of God. And in Abraham, he knows that God has called him and made promises to him. 
And he says, servant, I want you to go back to that land that I came from and find a wife for my son, Isaac. I'm trusting in the providence of God to guide you, direct your steps. And by the way, chapter 24, uh, it's a fascinating story, and we're not going to read the whole text in its entirety this morning because it's pretty long. But what we begin to uh, see here is uh, what happens as his servant begins to carry out this directive from Abraham. So notice what happens next in verse 10. It says this, Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram, Naharim, and made his way to the town of Nahor. Verse 11, He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Verse 12, then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And then notice how verse 15 begins. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came. So this servant just prays this prayer and says, God, let me know who you've chosen for my master by this sort of display of your providence. And before he's even done praying, here comes Rebekah. And as the story goes on, what we find is that she offers him water. She offers to water the camels. He watches this whole event unfold, and he speaks to her, and he says, what household are you from? And she announces it's the household uh, that she's from. Is lo and behold, uh, it happens to be the same one uh, as Abraham. She's related to Abraham. And so he says, the Lord has prospered my trip. And then in verse 26, notice what the servant says. The man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, uh, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. So again, going to summarize a little bit for the sake of uh, time, but he gets invited to the house. He goes into the house. The Bible says that they put a meal before him. And then he says, before we eat, I have to tell you what we're doing here. Uh, He narrates this whole story. And he says, hey, I serve Abraham. He's my master. God has blessed Abraham. And he has a son. His name is Isaac. And he asked me to come here and find a wife for Isaac. And I was praying about who that would be. This girl, Rebecca, came out to the well and I met her there. And I believe that God is in all of this. Will you be willing to send her to marry my master? And her father and her brother see this also as an orchestration of God's providence. Because look at chapter 24, verse 50 to 52. Here's what it says. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah. Take her and go. Let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord as the Lord has directed. Verse 52, When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. So they say, hey, this thing is from the Lord. And we see that. 
Clearly, God's hand of providence has orchestrated these events. But here's what's so interesting about chapter 24. I said it a little bit ago, it's, it's kind of a longer chapter, but it's actually the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. And yet in this entire chapter, the Lord himself is not even mentioned. Uh, or excuse me, the Lord himself never speaks, but he's mentioned 17 times. The way that we see the Lord in chapter 24 of Genesis is through his governing, it's through his directing, and his superintending of events in the story. And this is exactly what Abraham expected was going to happen. When he sent his servant back to Mesopotamia, he sent him with the expectation that God would in fact prosper his journey and provide a wife for Isaac. And so we see Abraham, he is demonstrating by his life and his, this, this whole errand that he sends his servant on, what is he demonstrating? He's demonstrating a resolute trust in the providence of God. Walter Brueggemann uh, says it this way, this chapter is a presentation of how to live in an ethos in which life is accepted and perceived as a gift from Yahweh's hand. It offers a worldview in which there are no parts of experience which lie beyond the purpose of God. Or to say it another way, as we just said, God's people are to live in a resolute trust of God's providence. So here's the question for you and me here this morning. Ready? Do we live this way? Do we live this way? Do you live as though there's no parts of experience which lie beyond the purposes of God. It's difficult to live this way. When events happen, especially bad events, sad events, the temptation for me and for you, all of us, is to see that as just a random sad event rather than an expression of God's providence. And let's just be real honest about our lives, right? We'd like to be real honest here. Abraham lived in a world where everyone assumed that the gods were active in human affairs. And we live in a world that assumes the opposite, don't we? We live in a world that is a disenchanted world. It's a closed-off world. It's a world that assumes that God does not intervene in human affairs. And so what reason do we have to believe in divine providence? We might be tempted to think that. Why would we read this as anything other than a story that, from an ancient culture where people believe this weird stuff about God's involvement in the world? Why would we read this story as though it speaks truth about reality, about the way that things actually are? Well, I think this is an excellent time for us to remind ourselves of what the message of the gospel proclaims. What disciples of Jesus Christ hold to be true about eternity about reality. The gospel reminds us that God entered into human time, into space, into history, in the form of an infant. And that God did not, he didn't just like crack the sky open in some supernatural display of power. Rather, he came quietly. He came quietly. It's subtly, so subtly that much of the world went on without even realizing anything had happened. But if a virgin bore a child, and if angels sang to shepherds, if wise men from the east followed a star to a stable, then this world is alive with the providence of God. But only if you have eyes to see it. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, 
I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. You see, the powerful and the wise, quote unquote wise, have always scoffed at the idea of providence. But the humble and the meek and the faithful have always lived the same way that Abraham lived. With a resolute trust in God's providence. So Abraham's life shows us not only how to live, but now we're going to look at how Abraham's life shows us how to die. And I think we need to have a vision for how we are going to die. Thinking about that day long before we get there. Kind of thinking with the end in mind. We need to think about the day of our death. We need to think about what we want to be true on that day. Because here's what I know. Not all who begin well end well. Not all who begin well end well. The the amazing thing about Abraham's story is that, guess what? He ends well. And here's a man who's walked with God for over a hundred years, and he died in faith. Listen, I've only been in ministry for almost 10 years now. But here's what I can tell you. I've seen a lot of people begin well and not end well. I've seen people walk with Christ for a season of life, a pretty long season, and then they totally abandon their faith. And I remember people who even invested in me spiritually, and they don't walk with the Lord anymore. But I want us to have a vision for how we might not only live, but also Die. I want us to notice two things about the way Abraham dies. Notice in Genesis chapter 25, verse 7, it says this, Abraham lived 175 years, and then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Notice what the text says here. Don't miss this. It says he was an old man full of years, an old man full of years. The majority of Hebrew manuscripts say that it it actually says he died an old man full. You go, what's that all about? Well, think about it. What it means is that Abraham, he didn't die empty. Abraham died full, full of hope, full of peace, full of faith, and full of trust. You think back over all the experiences that he's had, all the opportunities that life has given him to grow angry and jaded and cynical. But he hasn't. And why is that? It's because Abraham dies full. Not only that, but he also dies forward-looking. If you flip back to chapter 24, verse 8, notice what he says. Uh, remember what he says to his servant. He says, if the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only here it is, ready? Do not take my son back there. I think, you know, the older we get, one of the greatest threats can become nostalgia. We can start looking back instead of looking forward. And we can start pining and longing for the way things used to be. And there's certainly a place for that. There's always a time and a place for that. There's times to remember. There's times of reminiscing experiences and memories and things as a family that mark us or someone or something. And it's a natural thing to do that, especially in times of grief and mourning and 
longing and displacement, we remember and we look back to moments that we've had. Moments that we've shared when life was a certain way. Ways that we don't have or experience any longer. I mean, think about where Abraham is. He is dying at a land that's far away from his extended family. And his servants ask a really intelligent question, really. He says, I'm going to go run this errand for you. I'm going to go back and try to find a wife for your son Isaac. But listen, what if she doesn't come? What if, what if this woman doesn't want to, to come? Should I take your son back there? Should I take your son back there because we just moved back to the place where we came from? I mean, that makes sense, right? Because that's where all your family is. That's where your heritage is. That's where your people are. It's a good question. Do you want me to take your son back there? But Abraham, he re reiterates it twice. Under no circumstances are you to take my son back there. Now, why mention that? Here's why. Because he's looking, he's not looking back to what was. He is looking forward. He's looking ahead and saying that our future is here. Despite the fact that we don't have any kin here. Uh, despite the fact that all I own is this burial plot. This is where our future is. He says, don't take my son back there. Abraham dies with a forward-looking faith in God. So let me just try to make a simple point here if I can. I think for evangelical Christians in America, nostalgia can become a great threat. I think there's a temptation for us to want to turn back the clock and go back to a more leave-it-to-beaver type existence. When the culture was a little less fractured, when the world was a little less toxic, when religion was a little bit more respected. But don't miss this. There's, there's no way to turn back the clock, unfortunately. We're not going back to that world because that is the past. But like Abraham, our vision is not, let's go back. No, our vision is, what does it mean to go forward in faith? What does that look like? What is God calling us to? Even though we can't see it, even though it's there in the future and we haven't gotten there yet, what does it mean for us to look forward and to lean into what God is calling us to rather than what he has brought us from? The posture of faith we see in Genesis, it's a faith of forward-looking. What does God want to do next? How will his promises be fulfilled for future generations? Abraham shows us how to live, but Abraham also shows us how to die. And we see in the text that Abraham dies full, but he also dies forward-looking. So here's the question. How can we become like this? What does it look like? What about those of us who feel empty instead of full? Or what about those of us who feel more prone to look back than to look ahead? What can transform and change us into the people who live and die like Abraham? And I think the simple reality we need to see is this. You and I will never uh, be like Abraham unless we trust in the same God that Abraham trusted. Let me say that again. You and I will never be like Abraham unless we trust in the same God that Abraham trusted. We have to remember that this story is not about Abraham. I hate to break it to you. The, the, the sermon series on the life of Abraham is actually not about Abraham. 
In fact, it's not about Sarah either. It's not about Isaac and it's not about Jacob. It's about the God who established his covenant. And notice how the story ends in verse 11 of chapter 25. This is the concluding sentence in the life of Abraham. It's, here's what the Bible says. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac. And what, what this is doing is this. It's cueing you in as the reader to know that the story has now passed on from one generation to another. The story has passed on to a new generation, someone who's now stepping into the covenant blessing of God. And that began in chapter 12 when God said to Abraham, leave your country and your father's house, go and I will bless you, I will make you a great nation. What made Abraham great in life and death was the blessing of God. And now that blessing is getting passed on to his son Isaac. And then as that story unfolds in Scripture, we see that blessing passed on to Isaac's son Jacob. And then from Jacob, it gets passed on to Jacob's 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we see that blessing get passed on through kings and through prophets and through people throughout history, which ultimately brings us to Jesus. The people, this blessing is passed all the way down through kings, prophets, people throughout history to Jesus Christ. The hope of Israel, the Messiah, the greatest son of Abraham who fulfills the promise that God made to Abraham and brings us to the true promised land. His kingdom which will never end, which what made Abraham great in life and death was confidence that God's blessing was upon him. Because if you're confident that God's blessing is upon you, you will live a life of resolute trust in his providence. And you will die full. And you'll go to your grave with a forward-looking hope in God's future grace that's yet to be known and experienced by those who come behind you. So I invite you this morning, if you've, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, to do that for the first time, maybe, for some of us. Or maybe for some of you to renew your hope in Jesus once again. What, what it means to be a Christian is to hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to live a life of hope and trust in Him. And it's also to die a death of hoping and trusting in Him. That's what the story of Abraham beckons us to do. And that's what the life of Abraham calls us to. And that's what the death of Abraham reminds us of. Why don't you bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer. Well, Lord, as we come to the end of this sermon series, we just we come to you this morning and we just want to thank you for this story of Abraham. Thank you for this story, Lord. We've been learning so much throughout these past 13 weeks. I pray that you would use um, all of these teachings to mature us in your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray also, Lord, that and ask that you would give us the same grace that you gave to Abraham, that we would trust in your promise, and that we would trust in your son Jesus uh, to live in hope and in faith. And not only to live in hope and faith, but also to die in hope and faith. We pray all these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. Our church's mission is to follow God, share His truth, 
and be examples of the love of Jesus to all. If you would like to know more about us, you can visit our website at www.rittmangrace.org or drop by anytime for one of our in-person Sunday morning worship services. Once again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Rittman Grace Podcast.